This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. And this is the first new episode of the new relationship with Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun is a network of podcasts. You should go to MaximumFun.org and learn more about what they do or go to TheMemoryPalace.org and uh, read a little bit about why we linked up and what this means for you. Basically, it means very little for you. It means that you will be getting a new Memory Palace episode once a month. And it means that I will be getting a little bit of money to do so. Anyway, here is episode 45, Heard Once. In 1994, maybe it was 95, I was in a band, and it wasn't very good. And that was largely my fault. And we were playing a show in a living room in Santa Cruz, California. It was all very punk rock. And the first band was playing while I paced around in the hallway, nervous, because I knew my mediocre drumming was what kept us from being a good band. In the opening act playing in the living room were two women and a guitar and a snare. It was all very punk rock. And while I was out there in the hallway, they played a song that just killed me. It was simple and confessional and their voices were lovely. I bought a tape from them afterward. And a few days later, the tape deck in my car ate it the way that tape decks in your car used to do. And I lost the song. And I looked for it for years in every record store, and I never found it. And then I forgot about it. But the other day I was tooling around on my computer, and I Googled it, and there it was, the same exact version, uploaded from the cassette. It took all of a minute and a half. And then I was, for a moment, in the living room on Galt Street, and I could see the punk rock kids sitting on the floor like it was story time at the library. I could see the friends I had wished I'd kept in touch with, and the ones I was better off without, all because of the sound of a snare and a guitar and the voices of two 19-year-old girls. Now, I know this is a whole lot of preamble, but there's a point, and it's a simple one, but it is one that kills me. Before the advent of recorded sound, you heard something once, and that was it. You heard a song. Maybe you could buy the sheet music. Maybe you could pick out the tune on your banjo or the piano in your parlor. And maybe you could conjure up some sort of approximation. But you heard something once, and that was it. There are no existing recordings of Jenny Lind. She died in 1887 at 67 years old just after the first recording devices were invented. There's some evidence that she sang for Edison in his studio right before her death, but the recording is lost if she did, and it does seem that we're missing out. People who know these things tell us that Jenny Lind was the greatest singer of the 19th century, the greatest white singer in the white Western canon. People said she sounded like an angel, or silver, or spun silk or like a bird perched high in a thin branch, or a nightingale. People today, historians, opera buffs, whomever, sometimes call her the first rock star, but I won't. A rock star is someone you can hold in your hands and lie on the floor with when you put on your stereo with your headphones on. Someone you can watch over and over on Ed Sullivan or MTV or on YouTube or Vimeo. Jenny Lind wasn't a rock star. 
She was a firefly. She would flicker for a moment and then vanish and be gone. And such was the desire to see her glow that she sold out concerts at the biggest opera houses night after night for months on end, year after year. And in 1849, this success caught the eye of a man who said he had no ear for music. P.T. Barnum came to London and made Jenny Lind an offer. He would pay her $170,000 if she would come to America and perform 170 shows. And that was a fortune at the time. He had never actually heard her sing. He didn't care because he knew she could sell tickets. Jenny Lind arrived in New York on the 1st of September the following year. 40,000 people lined the docks to greet a singer they had never heard sing. Tickets to her first set of American concerts were sold by auction. The cheapest seats went for about 250 bucks, meaning that it cost roughly the average middle-class income in America at that time just to get in the building. But the wealthy of the New World happily shelled out for the chance to hear, just once, the reigning voice of the old world. And in lieu of a CD or a box set or a download or an uploaded cell phone video or a cassette sold out of the back of a car after a show, they bought tchotchkes, Jenny Lind curios, Jenny Lind waistcoat buttons, Jenny Lind porcelain dolls, handkerchiefs, gravy boats, anything that could remind them of what they heard once. And the people outside the theaters, the people who couldn't afford to get in, were swept up too. P.T. Barnum made sure of that. He played the press, feeding them true stories of Lynn's charity and chastity and religious piety. In America loved their superstars, chaste and pious. Even then. Jenny Lynn sailed back to England two years later with more than $350,000 to show for her efforts. She arrived in London a conquering hero. Her first return engagement was a concert for the Queen who had spent two years aching to hear her again. All told, Jenny Lind performed 93 times in North America on that tour. But there's one specific concert I want to leave you with. There were only so many cities a Swedish opera star could play in America in 1850. There were only so many appropriate venues. There were only so many well-heeled music aficionados. There were only so many cities. And it was hard to get from one to the other. So Jenny Lind and P.T. Barnum and her orchestra and entourage sailed from South Carolina to the Gulf of Mexico, stopping off for shows in Havana before settling in for a 13-night run in the grand new concert hall in New Orleans, Louisiana. Now, the closest major city was Memphis, 400 miles up the muddy Mississippi, several days' journey by riverboat, several days during which P.T. Barnum wouldn't make a dime unless he found somewhere else for her to perform. On a warm winter's night in 1851, a few hundred people crowded into a Methodist church that sat high on a hill above the river in Natchez, Mississippi. The town's few wealthy citizens, the plantation owners, sat in the pews, dressed up for a night at the opera, which was a type of night that most of them had never had before, and that none of them could have ever expected to have right there in the delta. And in the last rows, and standing in the back, and squeezed onto benches up in the rafters, were the shop owners, and the men who ran the docks, and the women who hung linen, many of them European immigrants whose lives had somehow led them here to the middle of nowhere. 
far from home in the music and the sounds they'd left behind. And for an hour, once, Jenny Lind, accompanied by a single piano because there was nowhere for the orchestra to sit inside the small church, sang songs some of them hadn't heard since they'd left home and others had never heard before and that all of them would likely never hear again. Jenny Lynn sang and then she was gone.